In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So Matthew chapter 25 is where we're at this morning. And uh, we pick it up in verse 1. Takes me a second just to get there. Matthew chapter 5, 25, verse 1. Jesus is speaking. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed... They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, As surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you, neither, uh, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know, I think it's so very interesting that not only does the Bible give us the history, you know, of the origin of mankind, you know, how the human uh, history, the human experience began, but the Lord also tells us in the, the Word, He tells us in advance how human history is going to end. I find that really fascinating. And We've been looking at what Jesus said would be the moral and spiritual condition of the world just prior to his return. And we've noted uh, in our previous studies that what he says, it's actually a very accurate description of the world that we live in today. I mean, it's unmistakable that we're currently living in the last days prior to the return of Christ. And we've seen in our study of the Olivet Discourse how Jesus encouraged his disciples. And he's encouraging us um, as his followers. He's encouraging us too to allow the rapture of the church to affect. Actually, uh, much more than affect. We're to allow it to dominate all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our doing, all of our being. And last week, we looked at Jesus' encouragement to the disciples to be ready for his return. And he said to, uh, that we're to be actively watching for his return. We're to be waiting expectantly with eager anticipation of his return. And we're to be working while we're waiting for him to return, Right? Uh, we saw last week that the faithful, wise, blessed servant, you know, he was the servant that when his master came, found him faithfully doing those things that his master gave him to do. So too, Jesus encourages us to be about the business God has given us to be about, which is serving him, 
you know, uh, being a witness to him, being a witness for him in the world, seeking to build the kingdom of God through sharing the gospel with those that are around us that don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what we're to be doing while we're eagerly waiting and uh, anticipating his return. So we see in Matthew 25, Jesus is bringing to a close this teaching called the Olivet Discourse, the teaching that he gave to his disciples there on the Mount of Olives. And in this chapter, he gives us three things that each of us needs to consider. The first thing is personal salvation. Jesus gives us the parable of the ten virgins in regards to this, verses 1 through 13. Again, it's a parable, okay? It's a very familiar event, well known by the disciples that Jesus uses to illustrate a spiritual truth. It's a very, uh, you know, it's an example that Jesus uses to reinforce the things that he has been uh, just saying, the things that he's been saying about being ready for his return. And it speaks to us, uh, it speaks to us of the need of making sure that each one of us we need to make sure that we're right with the Lord, ready for his return when he comes. The second thing in this chapter Jesus speaks of is our need to be good stewards, okay? Uh, in regards to being a good steward, Jesus gives us the parable of the 10 talents, verses 14 through 30. It speaks of our needs to be good stewards of those gifts, you know, and the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us uh, to, to use for his glory while we're waiting for his return. And then finally, the third thing that we see in this chapter is he speaks of servanthood. Jesus uh, closes out his comments with practical servanthood as he speaks of the judgment at the end of this age headed into the millennial kingdom, verses 31 through 46. So Jesus finishes his comments, contrasting the faithful and the wicked servant that he just made there at the end of Matthew 24. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to me. Jesus, what he's been saying is that there's, you know, plenty enough signs regarding uh, the time of his return that we should not be caught by surprise when he returns. Sure, you know, we don't know the day or the hour, could it be today? Well, yes, it certainly could be today. Otherwise, this portion of the Gospel of Matthew would be of no value to anyone, right? You know, uh, it's a waste of time if, if he couldn't come today. The truth is, you know, he could come today. And his word to each one of us is that we need to uh, be ready. And now Jesus, he builds on this idea that he's just gone through at the end of Matthew 24, he builds on this idea with the parable of the, of the ten virgins, right? Which is the teaching he gives, exhorting the disciples to be ready, to be prepared. And again, to me, it's a crazy thing to, to realize, right? As Jesus speaks of his return and the things that will precede his return, you know what? As you read through this parable, of the Lord's coming, you know, and as we have been reading uh, of him coming like a thief in the night, 
you know, all of a sudden, it should dawn on each one of us. We should realize that Jesus is saying, especially in this parable, that there are those who should not be surprised by his return that will be surprised. That's a sobering thought. Verse 1, Matthew starts out by saying, then. This then here is the connection to what Jesus has been talking about, which is when he returns. And we want to realize, we need to understand that there are no chapter breaks in the original text, right? The chapter breaks, the numbering of the verses, they were put in there at a later time to help us um, easily memorize Scripture passages and help us easily find Scripture references. So Matthew 25 is actually just a seamless continuation of Jesus' thoughts found in Matthew 24. Verse 1, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, We need to remember that Jesus is talking to Jewish disciples. So they would, uh, you know, be completely familiar. They would readily understand the culture and the customs of a Jewish wedding celebration. And we should remember in those days, marriages, they were arranged. You know, um, it's like we're good friends. You got a son. I got a daughter. You know, let's be joined together as a family. I'll give my son uh, to, or I'll give my daughter to your son to be her wife. And that's the way it was worked out. And it didn't matter that that little boy was going to grow up and look like the creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, that just wasn't a consideration. If the two of them ended up loving each other, well, that was a bonus. You know, there was no guarantees, though, that that would be the case. In those days, marriage was an institution. You know, adultery was a death penalty. And there was a tremendous respect and honor for the institution of marriage and for the family structure. Now, kind of in regards to the marriage, right? A year before the marriage ceremony would take place, uh, the couple would be betrothed. And at that point, it was like they were married. They were as good as married right then. However, the bride and the groom, you know, they still lived at their parents' house. They would uh, never actually uh, be alone. Any time that they spent together was, you know, a chaperone. And weddings in those days were something of a big to-do, you know? They were a big deal. Typically, what they'd do was the groom would post the date of the wedding, you know, inviting all to attend, but he wouldn't post the hour of the wedding. You know, uh, the people didn't actually know when the wedding was going to take place. And the reason why was there's a lot of preparation uh, that goes into a wedding then and today. But the difference back then compared to today is in those days, you couldn't just drive your truck up to Costco and fill it with, you know, a, a bunch of food and wedding supplies. So the date of the wedding was known but no one knew the time the wedding would take place. And that's, just, that's just the way the custom was. I mean, you know, and, and, and you think about it. It wasn't just invited guests who didn't know uh, when that wedding was going to take place. Guess who else didn't know? The bride didn't know. I mean, 
The bride was also left in the dark, right? She knows approximately, she too knew approximately the time the wedding was going to take place, but she didn't know the exact time the wedding was going to take place. I mean, can you ladies imagine that? I mean, put yourself in in those shoes, not knowing when your wedding uh, is going to take place. I mean, that's just a little detail that you're left in the dark about. I mean, uh, that would be difficult. But in this culture, you know, it was part of the anticipation of being with the groom. The bride had to be ready because the groom could come at any time. So uh, there she would be waiting with her bridesmaids. And in the parable that we're, we're uh, reading, the bridesmaids are represented by the, the ten virgins, right? And they all had to be ready because the bridegroom could come unannounced at any time. I mentioned it in a previous study, and it's worth mentioning uh, again. But Alfred Adersheim talks about the Jewish uh, wedding ceremony, saying that when the groom came for his bride, he and the friends of the bridegroom, you know, they would come down the street blowing a trumpet, crying out, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. And uh, he wouldn't actually go to, to his bride's house she would go out into the street and meet him. And then he would take her to his father's house. You know, he had been building on a bridal chamber onto his uh, father's house and he would take her there and it would be there in the bridal chamber uh, where the marriage would be consummated and there would be feasting for seven days. The groom and his new bride, they would spend seven days in their bridal chambers by themselves where they were pampered and taken care of and where they would just enjoy each other. And the groom would appear during that seven-day period, but the bride would never appear. She wouldn't be seen until the end of that seven days. You know, when that honeymoon time was over, then the groom would appear publicly with his new bride. And that would be the beginning of their public life together. So it's, you know, it's just such a wonderful prophetic picture. It's just a beautiful type of what's going to happen for us as the bride of Christ. Now, we know that the Lord is going to come for his bride. And, and of course, we know that that's the church. And you know what? We're to be ready. We're to be watching, you know, because he could come at any moment. And we're going to get caught up into the air to meet the Lord. And he's going to take us to his father's house where, uh, you know, he's prepared a place for us. And we're going to enjoy a seven-year honeymoon period with the Lord. It'll be a time of just enjoying intimacy with the Lord, loving on him, and having his love poured out upon us in ways we've never dreamed of or ever experienced before. And then at the end of that seven year uh, honeymoon period, we see in Revelation chapter 19 that the church will be revealed with Jesus when he returns at his second coming. You know, a Jewish wedding ceremony is just such as such as interesting type of the biblical truth that's ahead of us. Well, that's the background now of the Jewish ceremony. And the Jew uh, and Jesus uses this very familiar a set of events in this parable to illustrate the spiritual truth he wants to convey to us. In verse 1, he says, 
Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Now we're going to get into this parable in just a minute. But I think it's a very revealing exercise uh, to think through the wise and foolish characters of the Bible. I mean, the book of Proverbs, you know, it, it's all about contrasting the wise and the foolish. It focuses on wisdom, but it contrasts the foolishness of the fool with the wisdom of the wise. But one of the major characters found in the Bible that acted foolishly was King Saul. I mean, Saul's life is a picture of the flesh. And we see the foolishness of Saul's life in that he was just outright disobedient to the Lord, right? He didn't listen to the very plain instructions that the Lord had given him. And as a result, he lived a very jealous and bitter life. He missed out on so many blessings that the Lord had for him. Remember, uh, the Lord told Saul through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom had been ripped from him because he disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. And in an effort to prevent that from happening, what does Saul do? He seeks to kill David, being envious of him and threatened by him, right? He's not only full of envy in regards to David, but he's also very bitter. He's very stubborn. He's very prideful and he's unforgiving. And instead of repenting and turning to the Lord uh, in humility, changing his ways, the Lord, and the Lord gave him chance after chance after chance to, to turn and to change his ways. But instead of changing his ways, he was even more determined to go after David and destroy him. And it was at the end of his life that Saul says something so very interesting. At the end of his life, Saul says, Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. At the end of Saul's life, he, he says, Man, I, I've played the fool. You know, I've lived such a foolish life. And you know how sad it is to realize that your life has been spent in foolishness. You know, Saul had such potential for the Lord. But instead of walking and living in complete submission and obedience to the Lord, he plays the fool. He lived in disobedience to the Lord. He didn't surrender to the Lord. Nor did he follow the instructions of the Lord. And we see the consequences of disobedience to the Lord in Saul's life. Disobedience to the Lord equals misblessings. Right? It's a spiritual truth that's just inescapable. Proverbs 12, verse 15 says, The way of the fool, uh, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Right? You know, the fool says, Hey, I'm doing what seems right to me. You know what? You know, I got this gut feeling. And it just seems to be the right thing. And, you know, I can pretty much basically justify it in my own mind. And Solomon says the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. 
It's the wise man that heeds counsel. It's the wise man that seeks instruction. It's the wise man that's seeking to have God's counsel in his life and is obedient to it. Then again, we're going to get in the parable of the five foolish and the five wise in just a minute. But I, I think of another person who is described as a fool. Uh, you know, he's found in Psalm 14, verse 1. You know, it says there, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. For someone to live a life devoid of God, not considering God's proven word, living in defiance and disobedience to God and his word, I mean, it's just total and utter foolishness. Right? And when a person comes to the end of their life and stands before the Lord in judgment, they're going to realize then that they've played the fool and erred exceedingly. David says in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And I tell you, as you look into creation, it declares God's glory. As you look into the universe and you see the order within the universe, as you look, you know, at our planet, take a close look at our planet, its position in the galaxy, its position in the solar system, you know, it's just in the right spot to sustain life. And then you take a closer look at the design found in nature. You know, uh, as you focus even closer, you take a look at the animal kingdom all around us. You know, you look with a critical eye at the design found within the human body. And then you consider the fact that there are literally hundreds of things going on at any given moment, should any one of them cease to exist, it would be incompatible with life. And as you just even zoom in even closer and look microscopically at the incredible design of a single cell, you know, when you contemplate the, the overwhelming complexity of DNA, as you look at creation to deny that the world around us was created by a creator to think that it, you know, just happened, you know, through random chance occurrences. I'm sorry, but that's absurdly foolish in the highest degree. It's the fool that is said in his heart, there is no God. Another place where we see the fool, he's found in the New Testament. Keep your finger here in Matthew 25 and turn with me back to Matthew chapter 7. You might recall the teaching of the foolish and the wise there when we went through Matthew chapter 7. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, again, Jesus speaking. Read along with me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and what? Does them. Thank you. <laughs> Is everybody there? Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But 
you know, in contrast to the wise man, the one who was obedient to do the word of the Lord, Jesus says, verse 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains descended. The floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. Look, look with me at another place where Jesus speaks of foolishness. Turn over to Luke chapter 11. Uh, sorry, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And again, read along with me. We'll read Luke chapter 12, 16 through 21. Jesus spoke this parable saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? And it cracks me up every time I read it. I'm going to say to my soul, soul? <laughs> you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and, does, and is not rich towards God. To fail to live in obedience to the Lord. To fail to, to recognize that there even is a God. To fail to heed the word of God. To fail to live your life for him in such a way that you're rich towards him is foolishness beyond comprehension. Well, we've taken a brief, uh, brief look at this theme of foolishness running through the scripture. Let's turn back now to Matthew 25. And we'll continue on as we look at our parable with all of this as the background. Jesus says, verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. And you might want to underline that. At least, you know, uh, uh, make a mental note of it. The five foolish virgin, virgins took no oil with them. Verse 4, but the wise took oil in their vessel with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, there's no uh, blame being attached to any of this here, okay? It's talking uh, just about physical sleep. You can be watching and waiting while you're taking physical rest because watching and waiting is an attitude of the heart. Verse 6, it says, and at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. You might want to also underline that too. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and after them, it's very interesting, 
the door was shut. Afterwards, the virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Something you want to keep clear in your mind as you study through the parables. You know, a mistake that a lot of people make is that they want to give, every, uh, give a meaning to every little detail found within the parable. They think that every little part of the parable has to have a meaning. You know, that's not usually the case. Sometimes, um, you know, it can be that way in the parables. Sometimes it's very clear that which details, uh, you know, in a lot of the details, each of the details in some parables have a specific meaning. However, the parables usually have just one very important message, right? And remember, Jesus is speaking this parable to his disciples as an exhortation in regards to what he's been saying to them regarding his return. And the exhortation to his disciples in this parable is very clear. And Jesus makes his point in verse 13. He says, watch therefore. It's what we've been studying. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This whole story is told for one purpose. Jesus tells us the story uh, is to exhort us to watch because the day is coming when the Lord will return. When our bridegroom comes and he is coming for his church. He is coming for his bride. He is coming for us. And when he comes, we'll all be caught up to meet him in the air. And uh, we know that only those who are ready will go in with him. So the question today is this. Are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Are you watching, therefore? Are you preoccupied with that? Are you watching in anticipation for his soon return? It's interesting to, uh, at least to me, it's interesting to me that Jesus says, then the door was shut. And again, we're not trying to, to uh, put a meaning on every little detail Jesus gives. We're just trying to glean from the things that are very clear. When Jesus comes for his bride, once the church is raptured into heaven, the door is going to be shut, right? In the sense that this age of grace is going to come to a close. We're presently living in a time of grace where salvation is available to all. Whosoever desires to come, whosoever is willing to humble themselves, confess their sin, confess their need for a savior, they can come to the Lord and receive grace and forgiveness, which is available to all. As God's messengers, we're being sent out into the highways and the byways to invite people. We're to be inviting everyone and anyone who's, who has a desire to come. We're to encourage them to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to come and receive the wedding garments, the garments of righteousness provided by the Lord right? Offered to anyone who's willing to receive them and to, we're to encourage them to be part, you know, of that feast, right? To experience the joy related to 
being served by the Lord and dining with the Lord. Boy, the day is coming, you know, and I've said it many times in the past three or four studies, you know, I believe that day is coming very soon. Everything seems to indicate that the Lord's return, His coming for the church is just right around the corner. And the Lord Himself is going to descend with a shout and there's going to be a trumpet blast. And we're going to hear a voice say, come up here. Man, I can't wait. And, uh, you know, I just I, I get excited about it because we're going to be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. And it's at that point, this present age of grace that we're currently living in is going to come to a close and the door is going to be shut. Right? So again, the question here is, is the simple one. Are you ready? You know, there's a couple of different things that seem to be very significant in our parable. The first, we're told that those who were foolish had no oil with them. I think it's pretty clear throughout the scripture, um, oil almost always refers to the Holy Spirit. Those who were foolish had no oil. You know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they weren't ready. You know what? Religion can look like the right thing, but religion is empty. You know, it has no value in and of itself. Church can give you a lamp, but it's worthless without the oil. You know, going to church isn't what makes us a Christian any more than sleeping in the garage makes us a car. Okay? So again, the question is, is your vessel full of the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? You know, Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And remember, Nicodemus, he answers him. He's a bit confused. He just says, you know, how, how can a man when he's old enter, in, enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus corrects his misconception and said, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Has that happened? We've all had a physical birth, but have you had a spiritual birth? You know, is your body the temple of the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled? Are you being continually filled with the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit in you bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? Do you know that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee that when the Lord comes, you're going with him? The second thing I think that we need to consider in this passage is, are you sure you know the Lord? What did the angel say to Mary? You know what? He says, Mary, you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bring forth a son and, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary, you know, she said something so very interesting. She said, how can these things possibly be And that I have never known a man? It's the same word, right? Same word uh, Jesus uses here when he says to those that are knocking on the door, surely I say to you, I do not know you. Speaks of an intimacy, you know, an intimate relationship, knowing the Lord in a personal, intimate way. You know, I, I heard this uh, some years ago, and I'll share it with you today. I thought it was 
revealing, you know? It says, you may offer like Cain, weep like Esau, leave Sodom like Lot's wife, take part in worship like Korah, desire to die the death of the righteous like Balaam, prophesy like Saul, serve like Gehazi, be zealous for God like Israel, make long prayers for Pharisees, be a seeking soul like the rich young ruler, have lamps like the foolish virgins, be a disciple like Judas, tremble like Felix, be almost a Christian like Agrippa, and yet not know the Lord. You know, salvation is not how so many people see it. It's not fire insurance. You know, it's not raising your hand, you know, going forward when there's an altar call given, right? It's repenting of your sin. It's repenting of your sin. It's turning from those things that displease the Lord, turning from those things that grieve the Lord and turning your entire life over to him. You know, it's not playing church, but living in constant communion with him, living your life in obedience to him. You know, in our parable this morning, we need to see that those who were foolish, they, they did not know the Lord. They just looked like the other virgins, right? Those who were foolish, they looked like Christians. You know, they had their Bibles just like all the other Christians. They're marking in the Bibles just like all the other Christians. You know, they go to church just like all the other Christians. They even sing songs like all the other Christians. You know, they, they wear crosses around their necks just like all the other Christians. The only problem is they never had been born again. They never really knew the Lord. Right? And maybe they made a decision for Jesus at some point, but never entered into a deep, personal, loving, committed relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, where he is there all in all. They never really surrendered their entire life to him. You know, they held back parts of their lives in order for them to remain in control of those areas of their life. They're religious, but they're empty inside, completely void of the necessary oil for their lamps. You know, it's so comforting to me to know that I'm ready to meet the Lord. You know, what a joy it is to know that my vessel is filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm ready and I'm looking forward to, I'm even longing for the coming of the Lord. Well, does that mean I'm perfect and I'm, I never struggle? No, far from it, man. That's, of course, not the case. If you know me well, you know that's not the case. But like Paul said in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, now that I, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which, for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward towards those things that are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Boy, when we hear that voice saying, come up here, that's the upward call that we're looking forward to. 
And we need to be pressing on. We need to be actively seeking to grow in the Lord, going deeper with Him, getting to know Him better and better with each passing day, surrendering our lives to Him, making Him our chief joy and our singular pursuit, loving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? All that we are, totally given over to Him, holding nothing back, holding nothing in reserve. You know, I've said it before. There's no static relationship with the Lord. There is no neutral. You're either growing and running towards the Lord or you're backsliding, growing distant from the Lord. There's no middle ground. There's no other possible outcomes, right? My heart this morning is that each of us would be stirred, that the Spirit of God would speak to your heart this morning and that you would be exhorted, right? For the last few weeks, we've been hearing the Lord encourage us to be ready. And we need to uh, let that readiness manifest itself in watching and eagerly waiting and working, giving ourselves to serving Him while we're waiting for his soon return, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? If that's you this morning, you know what? Praise the Lord. Way to go. Keep running the race. You know what? Keep fighting the good fight. Run the race for Jesus in order to win. That's what we need to be about. You know, but maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're watching online and the Lord is speaking to you about your need to get right with him. You know, you've been coming to church. You, you haven't yet forsaken those things that grieve the Lord. You, you've asked him to come into your life, but you know what? You're not really pressing in. You're not growing daily in your relationship with him. You, you fail to make him the priority of your life. You know, maybe in complete honesty, just between you and the Lord, maybe you admit that your walk is probably, you know, best described as stagnant. You know, the opposite of growing. Maybe you have a lamp, but there's no, uh, no oil. And the single great lesson to be gleaned from this parable is that the rapture of the church must not catch a person being religious, but unsaved. Right? It's not enough to just be hanging out with Christians, trying to do the Christian thing, you know, trying to look like a believer. We need to be in a healthy, growing, daily, living relationship with Jesus Christ. Yesterday's experience with him aren't enough for us today. It's certainly not enough to keep us going for a week or a month or months. Our walk with the Lord must be daily. It must be living. It must be growing continually, right? Maybe you're here this morning and the Lord is speaking to you about your need to get right to him. Today, the Lord would call out to you to come to him. You know what? To give your life to him completely and totally. He would say, enough's enough. Stop playing church. 
Stop going through the motions. You know what? That was the problem with the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And they were believers. There was a lot of motion in that church, but there was no emotion. They left their first love. They didn't lose it. They allowed their hearts to drift. You know, they failed to focus on their relationship with the Lord. And they ended up leaving their first love. And Jesus' word to them was, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Right? Remember what it was like when you first gave your life to me. The excitement. You remember the excitement, how you made up songs from your heart and you sang them to me. Remember how you read your Bible every day, drinking it in, marketing it up. You know, you couldn't wait to meet the Lord in the word, right? How you couldn't wait. Remember how you couldn't wait to get to another Bible study so you could learn about him. Remember what it was like, how you'd witness to everyone and anyone that would listen. In fact, you were probably even seen witnessing to telephone poles. You know, you're just so excited. You know, just how you looked for and prayed for an opportunity to share what Jesus Christ did for you and what he now means to you. Jesus says, remember what it was like when you were just totally head over heels in love with me and repent. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for allowing things to creep in to my life and crowd you out. Lord, forgive me. Fill me afresh with your love, with your Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes on to say, remember, repent, and do the first works. That's his, that's his uh, advice to the church of Ephesus who had left their first love. Do again all those things that you used to do. Get back into the word. Make that a priority. Let your heart find joy in discovering his heart for you in the word. Get back to Bible study. Come with an expectancy to hear from the Lord. Come with an expectancy to be used by the Lord. Have eyes to see who the Lord would have you speak an encouraging word to as we gather together. Engage yourself in fellowship again within the church. Get back to growing in your knowledge of Him, His Word, and His grace. Get back to sharing your faith with others, telling others what Jesus did for you, sharing it with passion and conviction, calling them to the same saving faith that you found in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, if you won't remember, repent and redo, then I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. His bride must have a deep and abiding love for him. He's not going to be joined to those who don't. And if the Lord is speaking to, to you this morning of your need to remember, repent, and redo, to come to him this morning, then just come. Yeah, he's here. He's ready to receive. Surrender your heart to him. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to restore. Make him again your chief joy and your singular pursuit. Allow him to be your all in all. 
You know, and maybe you're here this morning. Again, maybe you're watching online and you've never actually given your life to the Lord. His word to you is to come. Today is the day of salvation. You may not have a tomorrow. And I don't say that as a scare tactic. You know what? That's just reality. No one's guaranteed the tomorrow. Just ask Naomi Judd, you know, the iconic country music artist who just died yesterday. Went, you know, hopefully she went home to be the Lord, whatever the case is. She just stepped into eternity yesterday. But even more than that, the Lord could come at any time. We're living the last days. He's at the very door, the Bible says. And any time now, the Father can tell him, can say to him, now's the time, son. Go get your bride. And when he comes, he'll take the church to heaven. And then the door will be shut behind him. And if you're not a believer, never given your heart to the Lord, man, you won't want to be left behind to face the judgment that will come upon the world at that time. If the worship team will come forward, we'll pray. Lord, it is just a sobering message, this passage, that there are those that thought they were ready but weren't. Lord, how important it is that we make sure that we're ready. Lord, those that thought they could walk in to the wedding ceremony because they were hanging out with those that were ready. Lord, how important it is for us to be ready, not to neglect. Lord, to just get right with you today. Lord, for everybody that's here that's running the race and doing a great job, Lord, I want to pray for them that you just continue to encourage them and strengthen them for the road ahead. And Lord, for those that are struggling, Lord, I thank you that there's no condemnation. There's only love and forgiveness and, and a willingness to restore, Lord. Move in their hearts now to just do business with you. And Lord, those that don't know you at all, Lord, may they just bow their knee, bow their heart, and say, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross, taking my sins, that you were buried and you rose again the third day, that your blood has washed me clean. Lord, I give you my life. Lord, do with it as you please, Lord. Give me the power to walk with you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.